Home is a documentary short film that tackles the homelessness crisis in the West Coast of the United States, Los Angeles, Seattle, San Francisco, through a different lens, through the lens that has been marginalized from the people on the streets. And it's especially important since over 500,000 people in the United States are experiencing homelessness every night. That was Pedro Coase describing the film he directed with John Zank, Lead Me Home. Pedro previously joined us to discuss his Rebel Hearts, uh, a great film, and you should listen to our conversation with Pedro and certainly watch the film. It's on Discovery+. Plus. John Zank is a longtime director who recently won an Emmy for Athlete A. Here's my conversation with Pedro and John about Lead Me Home. John, welcome to Top Docs. Nice to be here. Thanks for having us, Mike. And Pedro, welcome back. We spoke to you previously about your terrific film, Rebel Hearts. Thank you so much. It's uh, so great to be back with you, Mike. Congratulations to both of you on the film. Thank you so much. Thank you. Let's talk just briefly about terminology. I think it's important when we talk about these things. So the term homelessness has been used for many years. Recently, people have, I think, Gunn does use terms like, and someone in the film actually uses terms like unsheltered and even unhoused. I don't think these are completely semantic. I think the latter two terms maybe point a little more clearly at the responsibility of us, of society, for the circumstances these people find each other in. How do you feel about this and what are we going to use today? This is a great question. It's so smart to start this way. One thing that Pedro and I realized pretty early on in this process is homelessness is kind of a misnomer. When you go into a tent encampment, for example, in the cities that we were filming in, you realize right away that these are human beings who have created homes for themselves. The tents are bedrooms, the park benches are living rooms, the faucet on the side of the building is a kitchen. They have neighborhoods. We actually were in one tent encampment where there was a town council self-governance going on where there people were discussing rules and regulations about behavior within the camp. So yeah, Unhoused, I think, is maybe the preferred term used among those in the biz uh, of helping people experiencing homelessness. Unsheltered, for sure, is a very apt description for what a lot of these people feel unite tonight. So let's talk about the opening. We love to talk about openings because they set the tone for the film. Here we start from black. We hear some chirping birds signaling to us, I think, that it's morning. You open with a man sleeping in a tent. I believe this is Lewis. And the shot of one of San Francisco's beautiful streets. I live here in San Francisco. You show the top of a Tony apartment building with lights going on. And then we get a very high shot from behind the clock tower in San Francisco. Drone shot looking back into the city. And we want to talk about your drone shots more a bit later. And then the man, Lewis, opens the tent and reveals La Godita truck driving by. A little reminder of our consumer culture, I think driving by and we realize he's living on the side of a freeway entrance. That sequence, you nailed it in terms of it's the beginning of the day, it's morning, we're all getting up and about to go on about our day. And so we wanted to convey in a visual and, and sound sense without interviews, without dialogue, you know, just the things that unite us, right? But from a different perspective, Lewis gets up, he brushes his teeth, he gets ready for his day and he leaves. And a lot of other people doing the same thing, brushing their teeth, having breakfast, having a cup of coffee, taking family to, to school, going on public transportation or into their cars. And Lewis goes on his bike. One of the things we wanted to do, so importantly, just to set a tone that 
these are all things that we're all doing that going back to basics right the things that unite us as human beings and that was really important to convey in a way that was experiential and not intellectual in the way that you feel that you is immersive it also is quickly followed up by this intercutting which we start you know between folks like lewis who's out there sleeping under the underpass and the people that we kind of jokingly refer to as the muggles which is the people in in the homes who are brushing their teeth and getting their coffee ready and, and that kind of thing you know jumping in their cars on the way to work that was very intentional to create that parallel structure yeah, you show Lewis getting on his bike, and then you show the mother and daughter getting into the car, probably on the way to school. Looking from the outside into windows, into homes, which is in a way, as, as John said, I love the muggles term, it really is conveying that different perspective, right? That we're looking at our own world, our own cities from a different point of view, a point of view that we've made invisible for so long. Also, you use this kind of similar juxtapositions, I think, throughout the film later on. We'll see after you have a discussion about how some of the participants have problems finding regular food. We see shots of consumers in fancy restaurants, food courts, I think Pike's Market in Seattle. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we see the participants getting food, either in a food line or in one case, being able to scrape enough money to go to the grocery store to buy food for our kids. And then we have that for at the end of the day, at nighttime, when everyone's getting ready for bed and being with their families or being at home or reading a book or on their computer. And then at that nighttime montage, we we actually see futuristic and squiddy here in, I'm in LA, here in Hollywood Boulevard, dancing and performing for people. We see Tiffany with her kids. We see Flora at the shelter where she's at, watching her favorite anime again. It's all of us under the, the, the stars, uh, under the sun, kind of united um, together at the end of the day as well. For me, this scene, this initial scene really hits home dramatically. Anyone who lives in San Francisco and drives to Costco has been by that interchange. We have driven by, I, I've asked myself, I wonder who lives there. Now I know, Lewis lives there or has lived there in the past, but you really bring it home. It gets to the heart of an emotional thing about the process of making this film, which is Pedro and I have often traveled for work in the past, going to far-flung areas of the world to tell stories in the documentaries. And this was kind of the opposite. We were, we were waking up in our home cities and going to film really our neighbors and people who became our friends pretty quickly when we started filming them. And we would film Lewis during the day underneath the overpass on Division Street. And then we would crawl into our comfortable beds at night. And so it was a very stark contrast. And it was so hard not to think about these people that we were meeting and, be and getting close to. And it really drove the kind of parallels of humanity home and the crisis that we're facing home in a very personal way for Pedro and me. It's very personal. And yet the scope here is tremendous, especially for a short. You're covering three cities. San Francisco first, and then Los Angeles next, and, and then Seattle. That's how we sort of were introduced. And we circle back around a few times through them. But we get to the folks pretty quickly. And it sounds like a it's a vulnerability assessment that's being taken in, I think, Los Angeles, although I believe we're seeing people from all three cities. It's actually happening all over the United States. That same questionnaire, and this is something that John and I stumbled upon actually in Seattle. The first time we saw this happen in Seattle, we went to a shelter there and they said, you can't really film inside the shelter, but you can look at these vulnerability assessment 
basically intake interviews. Anyone who comes into the shelter or different organizations that are people seeking services or different help or housing, this is basically kind of a standardized intake interview that governments all over the United States use. And as you can see, the questions are very standard. Like, what are your plans for housing? It basically, Do you have any family? Exactly. Do you have any family? Things that elicit people's life stories. And what John and I saw was these window, extraordinary windows open up into these people's souls and lives, you know, heart-wrenching and extremely moving life stories. We started trying to capture those in the three cities that we filmed. We filmed many, and I think in a way that gets to the diversity and the breadth and the scope of all the different experiences and the variety of stories. We kind of tend to group the homelessness crisis as one monolithic thing. And no, it's as diverse as the stars in the sky with very different individual stories and experiences. I was really struck by the reasons that people end up homeless. As a viewer, of course, I'm going to ask that question. And maybe it's not the only question or the most important question, but it is a question. And some of the reasons are the ones you might expect, you know, imprisonment, drugs, domestic violence, but some are not. So one man suggests that 9-11 led to a depression, which led to homelessness. And we sort of fill in maybe inability to hold down a job, broken relationships. But wow, that's amazing. That's Ron Futuristic Sims, an Alvin Ailey trained dancer, really talented guy. He's actually been in films, living on the streets of Hollywood Boulevard. He actually had a choreography company. He worked for musicians doing stage choreography and a major gig fell through because of 9-11, the, the lack of air travel at that time. And then one thing led to another and he found himself unable to pay rent and been struggling for 20 years. He, he actually... Good news there is fast forward today in 2022, Futuristic is in housing and we feel great about that. He's such a good guy. He's got a lot of creative energy. So hopefully we'll have another chapter. That is good to hear. It's very interesting. At one point, a man who works with the homeless in LA, the unhoused in LA, tells a woman that it could happen to anyone, that he himself is one paycheck away for being in the tent next door to her. On the other hand, homelessness definitely seems to be happening much more to the marginalized and the oppressed in our society and those who struggle with psychiatric issues and with drugs. So it seems like it's probably a little both, right? I mean, things go bad for any of us, and yet there are people who are probably more likely to end up unsheltered. One of the things that completely surprised us, for example, we went to a family shelter in Seattle, and we met families that were put in a position where one of their children was diagnosed with leukemia and one of the two parents worked and one of the parents had to quit their jobs to help take care of their child. And the other one was left working. And eventually they were left with whether they pay for their child's medical care or for their rent and provide for their families. This is one example of many examples. There is another scene in the film where a, a mom who is living in her car with her kids the social worker said, we need to get you off the streets. This is an extreme situation. And she says, basically, each step by step, if you go slowly, it doesn't seem so extreme because like, it wasn't a night to day thing. It didn't happen from one day to another. There's a progression of events. Today, I'm in stable housing. I'm in my own apartment. But who knows if there is a, a progression of events. Basically, it's not that many steps. And I think that's one of the things that we 
learned a huge lesson about vulnerability and all of our vulnerabilities. That is something that we also wanted to impart because there are people that like experiences as vast and wide as the stars in the sky, as I said. Maybe my experience is different from a lot of the people, but it's not too far away from, from futuristics, let's say. And that's the thing that I think we're all really connected on that vulnerability sense, the sense of that we're all in this together. And as you said, I think we need to look at ourselves and our systems right now. I want to talk about some of the culture that we see here, and John's hinted at this. So we see a scene at the portable shower, which I think is near the Civic Center and the main library in San Francisco. This turns out to be a place where many needs are met, you know, the showers, healthcare needs, but also very importantly, I think social and emotional needs, which I sometimes think we probably don't think about, don't consider. And here we find out Lewis and the worker and a worker there who's just wonderful have a conversation and we find out that Lewis has met Zia, we later see them kind of snuggling in a laundromat. Can you tell us about them? That organization that provides the showers and other kind of human needs out there is called Lava May. It's an amazing organization. Their slogan is radical hospitality, which is just a, an amazing idea that they've come upon, happened upon, and just do an amazing job. Lewis met this woman who they connected with Zia at Lava May at one of their pop-up events in San Francisco, and it kindled a relationship. We actually kind of met Lewis right as it was burgeoning and were able to film them together. They lived separately. She was, I think at the time, living in a women's shelter in San Francisco while he was living outside. Sometimes they spent the night together, I believe, but she, as a woman, many women feel more unsafe than the men who experience homelessness. So I think she felt better inside a women's shelter. Yeah, it was touching. You know, it was a reminder, as Pedro says, you know, we all brush our teeth, we all have coffee, and we all hope to fall in love. And that was really a, a beautiful thing to witness and a reminder of there's many more things that, that connect us than divide us. At one point, Ravel, this young woman, we see her in Hate Street. She's calling her mom to tell her mom that she's about to become a grandmother. She then relays that conversation to her boyfriend, Roman, and we watch him as he watches her walk away. This is a bit of a tricky scene to read. And I guess I felt happy for her that she could find joy in these difficult circumstances. She's in love. She's going to have a baby. But also, of course, concern for her, for her boyfriend, for the baby. Can you talk about that scene? And what do you think Roman's thinking as she's, as she's walking away? It's probably not a whole lot different um, from what I felt when I found out that my wife was pregnant, kind of, holy cow, you know, life is going to change with the added stress that he's a relatively young guy living on the streets in the Haight-Ashbury district. That night, we followed them into the Buena Vista Park, where they set up their tent and camped out, as they were doing at that point in their lives, living on the streets. And it was pretty sobering, I think, for both of them. And kind of a funny, I don't know, how to put it, but at the same time that there's suffering going on, the intention was that even in suffering, there's joy. And that moment of life and rebirth and pregnancy, that's a theme. Or another character that we had in the film, Tiffany, experiences a similar thing with her pregnancy. It's complex. And the overwhelming feeling that I think I had was of connection and identification. And I think maybe before I might have felt more of a judgment kind of feeling, having not spent time with these folks. But one of the lessons that Pedro and I think learned here is that these are people just like you and me, and we felt a lot of connection and joy for them. 
We later see them. She's pushing a stroller on the Venice Boardwalk. So they've gone south to LA, the Venice Boardwalk. And then we have one of my favorite compositions of the film is she's sitting there with the baby and we see Roman skateboarding in the bowl in the background. It's a beautiful composition. How are they doing? Um, that's actually not Roman, by the way. Was, everyone is, lest we were in touch with Ravel, she's in housing. One of the really encouraging things is that a lot of the people that you've met in the film are now in stable housing. Futuristic is in stable housing, living downtown LA. Squiddy, the guy who's playing the sax right next to Futuristic, he's living in Vegas with his family. The mom, that you, the pregnant mom that you met, she's in stable housing with her kids and actually working for an organization that provides services to his families experiencing homelessness. Bro, who you see helping Lewis clean the park, is now in housing, has stable housing, is engaged, is also working for um, organization in Oakland, helping people find housing and is actively trying to help Lewis right now get into housing. Lewis is in temporary housing right now in Oakland. As, as you can see, a lot of the people that you, you met in the film are now in stable housing. This film, I think that it's very broad. It's almost epic in its scope, but you do a clever thing, which is you frame it with an opening morning scene and a closing night scene. And we see Lewis in both situations. So it's, it really brings it all together. At the center of the film is an extended scene that surprised me a little bit, which is a extended scene to Cold Place Midnight, where you bring together, as you have said, a lot of people, both homeless and not homeless together. I think I can definitely feel Pedro's incredible facility to edit the music in this scene. It really pulls things together. Can you talk about it maybe a little bit more? First of all, thank you, Mike. That scene, it was a real joy and pleasure to work on. First, because we were working with the extraordinary visual poetry of John Schenck himself, who is, is a poet with, with a camera and in many other ways. As you said, it brings it together in a way that it's the shared humanity, right? It is the fact that we are all in this together and that we are going through life and we have our ups and downs but it's going back to that basic sense of the, the human desire to nest, as you see with Roman and Ravel setting up their tent and cozying up together before going to bed. It's that human desire to connect in a way that you see futuristic and squiddy dancing, performing on the streets of Hollywood Boulevard, and you have Flora and Lewis reading in his tent. It's all like, this is the end of the day, and we've just gone through a full day. But at the end of the day, we all dream, we all love, or we're all under the, the same stars. And then we're on this together. And I think that was the overall feeling that we wanted to communicate. And that joy, as John said, that there are moments of difficulty, there are moments of challenge, but there's also love, there's also joy. It's that variety of experiences that kind of define our existence here on this planet. We also see some administrators. So we go inside the city, Hall, I think of Seattle. If you didn't know, in Seattle, the Starbucks coffee cups might clue you in. We see them talking about the issues, and then you intersperse a lot of amazing drone shots. Some of them Seattle, but I think you also mix in a little LA here, maybe San Francisco, uh, which is interesting, right? You're talking about Seattle, but you're mixing in drone shots from various places. Can you talk about what you're trying to achieve there? A big part of this film was an attempt to show the macro and really zoom out and give the audience a sense of the scope and scale of this humanitarian crisis. Now in 2022, there's close to 600,000 Americans that are without houses every night with sleeping on the streets. A third of those roughly are on the West Coast. That's a lot of people. And what we realized is that obviously each city 
has its peculiarities in, in terms of how it interfaces with this issue, but there are far more similarities than differences among a city like Seattle and San Francisco or San Francisco and LA when it comes to the issues, which is basically that the wages, the minimum wages are not enough for people to afford the cheapest housing. The math works out that as the rents go up, if the wages don't increase or if jobs are lost, then there's more people on the streets. And so we made a conscious effort in the film to not focus on any particular intersection or any particular city even. It's really, we felt like it was kind of all the same. It's really a national problem going back decades in terms of federal policy and tax policy and that kind of thing. So that was the intention there. And the drone shots were meant to, Pedro was talking about earlier, shift our perspective a little bit. We're, I think we're all used to seeing this from a very specific perspective. For me, it's on my way to work or I'm on the way to the restaurant. You see these familiar encampments or people that you might become familiar with. If you get above it, it's amazing how these wonderful cities that we've built to cohabitate in and share culture and food and life are being stressed by these policies, which often have nothing to do with what the cities are doing. There are these forces that are beyond. And so that was the intention there was to kind of pull out and give the audience a chance to ponder that. Yeah. And cities where unprecedented wealth has been created in the last yeah. 15 years has also seen unprecedented growth and homelessness. As you suggest, I think visually and otherwise, they are interrelated. We also see some of the actions and I guess reactions taken against people who lack stable housing. We see a kind of a police rousting in LA and we see a citizen revolt against uh, Embarcadero Safe Navigation Center, which is a homeless shelter here in San Francisco. I lived through this controversy. I think you chose not to, for example, talk to cops and you chose not to talk to these citizens who are fighting against the Safe Navigation Center. Can you talk about not representing their voices in this? It's a good question. You know, we really felt like, by and large, this was a film about perspective. And in general, our feeling was that in the media, there's this kind of perspective that's often laid out there, which is that there's something wrong with these people. It, it feels like something like victim blaming is going on, where people tend to, and myself included, in order to make sense of it, you almost want to believe that there's something wrong that's particular to that individual or these individuals that led to this crisis, to their crisis. When we studied the issue and talked to people who've studied it, everybody from economists to law enforcement to other leaders, journalists who've studied it, it really feels like, by and large, this is a systemic problem, that there are problems with our economic structures in, in this country and in the state of California, the state of Washington, that are leading to this, that could be corrected if we wanted to. For example, when we all go through middle school and high school in America, we learn about the Great Depression. There was an economic problem. There was a collapse. There were homeless people. We pulled together as a country and did something about that because we had a, a recognition that there was something wrong with our economy. And we changed it. We put regulations in that helped that. We're not going about it in the same way now, and there's a variety of reasons for that. But to answer your question, in the media, it feels like part of the intention there is to blame the people that are actually suffering on the streets. And we wanted this film to be kind of a little bit of a perspective shift as sort of a contrary voice to that. In lieu of major federal action on this problem, we are bound to work within our local context. And I think uh, here in San Francisco, there's been movements that are good and not so good in those directions. How else can people help out? 
We are very proud to be part of the leadmehomefilm.com website, which is an organizational principle for the outreach and community engagement program around this film. We've created high school and college curriculum, which will be posted to the site soon. We have community discussion guides. We have links for people who see the film who want to get involved in their local communities to volunteer to help. on on the issue. And we also have resources for folks who are experiencing homelessness if they need to take that first step towards getting a helping hand. And we'll continue to build that. It's like a lot of things in our country. It's all hands on deck kind of situation. I think that whatever you do in life, film reviews and interviews or other types of journalism or politics or business or whatever it is, there's so many ways to help and be part of the solution here. I think a big part of it is taking the first step, which is getting perspective and, and trying to understand it. What's up next for you? Actually, Pedro and I are working on an exciting project together. We're working on a film about climate change, which is going to focus on the 70s and 80s when the science and the politics of climate change as we know it today started to form against the backdrop of the 70s oil crisis. Again, thank you. And congratulations on this film. I think very short, it borders on the epic and its scope. You truly reveal the complexities of the lives of these people who find themselves in these circumstances. And you make the rest of us, the housed, or I should say the currently housed, feel the urgency. We really impress upon us the urgency of the situation. And I hope that we all feel even more empowered, compelled to act. Mike, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Mike, for this thoughtful interview. We really appreciate it.